Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and I'm here with uh, the two regulars today back in Peter Katz's office. Uh, lovely to see you, Peter, as always. Thank you, Dom, and it's great to be in air-conditioned comfort today. It's 36 or 37 outside. And that must make people think, oh, they must have recorded this in the height of summer in Australia. No. This is autumn. This is autumn. This is autumn in Brisbane. The Uh, new autumn. (laughs) The new autumn. Um, Sue Grimmett is here as well, Sue, and uh, also grateful to be in the aircon, I'm sure. Yeah, I am indeed, and grateful to stop after quite a full week and get to the end of the week to sit and have a conversation with some good friends is a treat. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and today's conversation is one that sort of grew quite organically, actually. Uh, it is with, uh, I'll maybe introduce our guest and then introduce the topic, but Peter Klein is the Academic Dean and Lecturer in system, Systematic Theology at St. Francis Theological College. Uh, we have probably been uh, thinking for five or six years, we have to get Dr. Peter Klein on the show as our own guest for the podcast. You did join us for the Willie James Jennings episode, which people may remember, but we mm-hmm. haven't had you on as actually the guest yet. Mm. So I'm Sorry it's taken so long. That is a shame on the podcast, but it is so wonderful and uh, we're so grateful that you're here, Peter. Yeah, no need to apologize for that. And I'm just so grateful to be here and just chat with you all. So yeah, it'll well, be fun. And, and this conversation, um, I think... The way I think of the conversation we're about to have is kind of as if we're popping the hood on our society a little bit Mm. and looking at the engine that runs the thing. We're sort of going to look at a lot of the narratives, the tapes and the ideas that are fueling our lives and fueling our cultures, fueling our workplaces, fueling just about every element of how we live, actually. And and these narratives come out of uh, many things, but one of the... I guess, interesting philosophical ideas that, that I heard you speak about, Peter, was the idea of cruel optimism, which is what we uh, want to talk about today. Um, effectively, how the things that we might think are good things, opportunity, possibility, choice, ambition, these things are often hurting us in many ways. And I was actually sitting at an event um, a couple of months ago now that, that Peter was speaking at um, on cruel optimism. And I think you're about 10 or 15 minutes in and I sneakily got my phone out and texted Sue, we've got our next podcast. Because immediately as I was hearing this, I thought we have to talk about this. This links to so much of what we talk about on this podcast. So many of the things that we're trying to explore of, of how we got to where we are today in the world, why so many of us carry around this sense that this thing just isn't working, not just on a political or environmental level, but on quite a soul level or a, a desire level, even something's gone a bit wrong with desire maybe as well. Mm-hmm. So this is all um, couched in the idea of cruel optimism, which is probably a great place to start the conversation. Uh, it comes from American scholar, uh, Lauren Berlant. Berlant, how do you pronounce it? Berlant, Berlant. what I would say. Um, how wrong. do you introduce the idea of cruel optimism, Peter? Yeah, I mean, probably the most helpful way to do it is before like diving into the concept directly to sort of ask about the broader context out of which Berlant develops this context, which uh, for Berlant is the context of neoliberal capitalism, mm. um, which is our cur- kind of current economic, political, global social order. Um, the water we swim in, the air we breathe. Yeah, the water we stuff. swim in, the air we breathe uh, that determines kind of so much of our lives, both economically, but also politically. So we could do, a, I mean, there's a whole, you know, genealogy you could take about neoliberal capitalism and exactly where it comes from, but I won't go into that. But probably the best way to start is just to say that for kind of neoliberal capitalism, um, the the thing that it values most or that says that it values the most is freedom. Um, this is kind of the ideology, right? Like we, and we want to export freedom everywhere and make sure that everyone has access to this thing called freedom. But what freedom is under this sort of regime of neoliberal capitalism is very particularly the freedom to participate in competitive markets. That's what it means by freedom. Not just any kind of freedom, but specifically the freedom to participate in competitive markets. And what happens under a kind of neoliberal capitalist regime is that more and more of our lives, all the way from the largest social political aspects of our lives, all the way down to the most intimate spaces of our lives, are more and more ruled by the logic of competitive markets. Um, and so we're taught to, you know, not only market our businesses and economic pursuits, but we market our very selves. And this is all wrapped up in social media. Um, and we're all participating on the market of, of com- marketing ourselves, right? So in social media, we're all competing for, you know, likes and followers, um, you know, online dating. The whole dating world is all about marketing ourselves. 
and trying to find a partner through you know mutual all that kind of stuff so and this is all this is all kind of the context of neoliberal capitalism um, and then anytime there's a social problem nowadays how do you solve social problems well you create a market to solve the social problem uh, so you know if you think of the ecological crisis we're currently facing many of the kind of solutions you know that are popping up to solve something like the social crisis well you create a market for it right you sell you sell something you sell carbon offsets right mm -hmm. or you sell you know you get people to buy a kind of abstract little patch of land somewhere that they think that they're caring for right and this idea is that you have to you have to market to people their participation in social good right we're furthering the social welfare it's all about the logic of of the market so and and what this means is that how we come to think of freedom we come to think of freedom in terms of our freedom to participate in social market or competitive markets but really what these markets are doing is ever more narrowing constraining shaping our freedom and our desire in in kind of very particular directions um, so that we what we think we're doing freely is we're actually just following very predetermined scripts about what we're supposed to want and what we're supposed to desire and we think participating in these scripts we're enacting our freedom i mean probably an example i like to use which is sort of tongue-in-cheek but it's also true is like you know is you think you go to the shops and you buy the latest iphone and you get to pick your color of iphone yeah. and you think this is the this is the highest expression of my individuality and, and authenticity as a person right is i'm picking the purple iphone right this time around and that displays who i am as a person when really there's what five or six colors of iphone and you pick one and it's a massively constrained decision but that's the kind of thing that we're tricked into thinking right mm. and so I had the freedom to choose the color. Yes, I had the freedom look to choose. Look at all my freedom. Look at all my freedom, right? And I've got the latest technology. I've got the latest capitalist product, you know, um, and that's the highest exercise of my freedom, right? The particip to participate in a competitive market, right? And then on my iPhone, I do all the things that I'm supposed to do as a good neoliberal capitalist subject, right? So get on social media, you know, you know, all that. And, you know, and we're going to talk about real estate eventually, you know, I can download my real estate app and be continually looking at all the real estate options that I can. So that's, yeah. So, so Berlant's notion of cruel optimism emerges out of that, out of that, that context. The, their whole notion of, of cruel optimism is that our kind of milieu, our culture, our, our society teaches us to become attached to things and to attach to certain kind of promises of fulfillment and happiness that ultimately are radically unfulfillable. Um, and so the, the notion of cruel optimism is that it holds out these promises, it holds out these kind of tantalizing images of fulfillment or paths to fulfillment, um, that in our very attachments to them, they're the very things that block us from actually exercising anything like what we might call a more genuine sense of freedom or a more genuine sense of relationship or attachment or fulfillment or yeah, exercise yeah. of creativity or, or whatever, whatever, however we want to talk about what, what we actually want out of life mm. um, is that they hold out promises and we attach ourselves to these scripts, but it's those very scripts that actually block and constrain us rather than enable us. And that's the basic idea of cruel optimism. Yeah, it's such a such a brilliant um, what five minute there explanation yeah. of what we've ended up with in the world, and and you see this all the way through life. You see it from I guess looking at school children, and, and they're all thinking about what they're gonna, what university they might go to, what trade they might take on, and there's this sense of the freedom they have to do anything they want in the world, but actually there isn't that much freedom to do anything they want in the world. And and I even remember talking to my careers counselor about my love of audio and comedy and these sorts of things. And within a half hour conversation that had turned into a law degree. And I left thinking, how did I end up at a law degree? But there was this idea of you can go and do a law degree. Yep. And it was such an interesting way that we got there. But then you see it go all the way through. You've mentioned real estate that, you know, I've got the freedom to go out there and, you know, if, if I am a very fortunate person in this world, at least, maybe look at buying a property and actually mm -hmm. owning some land and look at all that I have in front of me. But actually, these things aren't all that they that they appear to be. Um, what are we missing when we... Because a lot of people who maybe haven't been introduced to this idea before would go, no, there are more opportunities than ever before for kids leaving school. And there are more places you can go and live and jobs you can go and go down and houses you can go and look at buying. What, what are they? What are we missing when we are when we're sort of buying into the idea that that is freedom? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we're we're, we're missing is these narratives and scripts 
they, they tend to be radically individualist. They, they tend to be visions and scripts of, of you as an individual. Um, and maybe sometimes it includes an individual family unit, right? And this is the real estate part of it, right? Yes. But they tend to be visions of an individual um, in some imaginary status of success, right? Or state of success. Um, and I think that what is one of the things that's, that is really, really missed is, is all the different possibilities for, for what we might broadly call flourishing um, that, that need for their fundamental condition a kind of irreducible connection to other people mm. um, and others and social worlds and communal worlds. Um, and how that, that, that to do that, you need to kind of break down a lot of the social barriers that are, that are being more and more kind of, kind of put up. And, um, and this has to do with organization of space. It has to do with, you know, neighborhoods, how neighborhoods are organized, how communities are organized. And so, yeah, so, so that's the thing, one that's missed, right, is, is, is it's, a, it's an individualist uh, it's an individualist vision. I'd say the other thing that maybe is missed is... This I this sort of part of part of the ideology of cruel optimism and neoliberal capitalism in general is is that this idea of the good life or that you are flourishing or that you're successful or that you're enjoying your life it's become for us a moral imperative mm-hmm. um, and it's it's you know back in you know. How, Back in the old days, whenever you want to date that, pre-modernity in the medieval period or something, when political structures were different and authority worked differently, you know, you, you can imagine that the, the imperatives of political order where you should obey the law, right? Obey the king, obey the law, obey whatever, you know, person is in authority. We no longer really live in the world where the imperative is simply to obey the law. The imperative that comes to us in a neoliberal capitalist context is enjoy. So it's not obey, but enjoy. You better enjoy your life and show that you're enjoying your life. Yeah. And so you better have the, you know, be successful and show that you're enjoying your success. So what that does is it, is it, is it makes something like unhappiness or discontent a moral failure. Um, it makes things like depression, anxiety, a moral failure of the individual rather than a, a symptom of larger social collective forces. So it, it, it forces, you know, and the, the things that you have to display um, in this society to show that you're a successful citizen are things like good performance, high productivity, constant self-improvement, and relentless cheerfulness. Um, and this, you know, that, and that's what displays the fact that you're a flourishing, successful person or subject. But that cuts off a whole lot of life, right? The difficult parts of life um, and the, the sort of, you might say, the sort of even melancholia that I think is a normal yeah. part of life sadnesses anxieties workings through grief, griefs and losses it, it makes it very difficult to to inhabit those things as essential parts of our humanity and i think it also makes it difficult to inhabit the actually good bits too because yes. the actual good bits come around and suddenly these are the opportunity to show that i'm enjoying my life yep and so instead of fully being present and, and living this beautiful moment i'm getting all the photos videos proof to show social media or even maybe just to show myself when I'm scrolling through my camera roll <laughs> later that night, how good a time I had and how I'm ticking the box of enjoying my life. And so not only does it make it harder to inhabit the harder parts, but I think it stops us inhabiting the, the, the actually good bits too. Absolutely. I think that's right. And, and it, it makes us miss, you know, and we think what the good bits are have to be these extraordinary marketable social media worthy mm. moments or whatever and and rather not realizing that actually the good bits of life are actually sometimes so simple yeah. and unextraordinary are very ordinary yeah they actually um over promise and under deliver the, the very things that are supposed to be excellent aren't because we're not really connected to people and we're not connected to space and time and we aren't taking the time because efficiency is also one of the things we're supposed to enjoy God help us, um, that we actually are not present to each other. And you're right, the simple things. You know, people often will say the best afternoon is when they've just sat around chatting to a whole bunch of other people by accident rather than the planned grand party. It's just the fact that you find yourself enjoying someone else's company and the time disappears and you're in a state of presence and it's transformative. 
but it's not performative. Yeah, and I think the difficulty I often talk about with high school students where I work um, is that if it's a Saturday night and you don't have plans, which is probably where at any, on any given Saturday night maybe 60% of the, the world would be, maybe 70%, I don't know. But if you're, you don't have someone, a family member coming for dinner, you're not seeing a friend, you're not going to the movies, you, you're not watching the football, whatever, you're just sitting around wondering, how am I going to spend my Saturday night? And then you're scrolling through Instagram, especially as a young person, you're not seeing the full representation of the 100% of people you know and how they're spending their Saturday night. You're seeing the 20 to 30% who are doing something tonight. They have gone out for dinner. They've gone to a show. They've gone whatever. And that's all that you see. You don't see the other 70% posting, I'm alone, not doing anything. Um, and what you end up comparing is your reality to their reality and starting to think, I'm not enjoying my life enough. I'm the failure. And, and so that's, I think, what drives them that desire that then when you are with friends, I've got to post this. I've got to get, I've got to show people that I'm, you know, succeeding in this market as well. And I think this is so much of the relentless demand to enjoy that you're speaking about that's holding us all hostage. And it's stopping us from changing too, isn't it? While yeah. we're all holding this uh, this facade up and while everyone feels that they need to be putting it must be me when we get back to the individual thing, that if I am feeling sad, anxious, um, you know, stressed out by the way that the world is constructed and created around me, then that clearly must be my individual problem. Um, it's not actually the fault of anything else that's going on, you yeah. know. So when we talk about needing to address things like the spaces we live in, we're not going there because we presume it's a whole lot of individuals who've got individual problems. It's actually not. Uh, we, we can't actually begin to address some of the systemic things that are causing the problem. Mm. It's true. And I was just when Peter mentioned um, buildings before, uh, I was reminded of a conversation we'd had a few years ago at a business breakfast where one of the city planners um, said that we've lost the idea of the neighbourhood because each building is now an individual and each developer wants each developer wants their building to be the one that has the coffee shop in it. Whereas neighbourhoods wow. used to be places where along the street you would have a coffee shop, a bakery, a, a laundromat, a grocery store, grog store, and there would be this sort of harmonious integrated neighborhood effect because it was relational whereas now because each developer is allowed to just create their building without any reference to what's around it you end up with a whole bunch of clone like buildings each of which has a coffee shop and then the coffee shops all fail because they're all competing you, with each they're other. All competing <laughs> with each other and so you end up with a whole bunch of buildings that have nothing in their commercial space and the whole thing breaks down and people who thought they were moving into the dream because again there's this optimism of what the what it's going to be like when you move into this new swank mm. apartment block it becomes a slum yeah that's and i think what's really interesting about this and where it all where it all comes home in a sense is the fact that i think most people are carrying around with them from those who are living in the multi-million dollar um, mansions who are living the, you know, sort of the dream of the cruel optimism, those who it hasn't worked for, who are really struggling to, to find money to pay rent or to find a rental uh, in the current market is a, an absolute nightmare. Wherever people fit on whatever, I guess, the have you achieved the dreams of cruel optimism or have you not achieved them? Wherever you fit, it hasn't really done the job. So there's that. That's the. I, I remember I was speaking with um, Peter Rollins uh, on a podcast at the start of this year, and he was talking about living in an incredibly wealthy part of of the US, and how while he was over there, he he saw more melancholy than he'd ever seen before. These people carrying around this sense they had everything that anyone could possibly want, and not even just wealth, but health as well. Mm -hmm. And basically, they'd mm -hmm. been able to tick all of these boxes. And they just sort of, it hadn't really worked for them. They'd, they'd achieved the dreams and the dreams had left them entirely unfulfilled. Mm. And so this is, this is not any individual's fault. It's just a systemic thing at the heart of it. I guess a question I've got, and you've mentioned this a little bit of the, the context, but how did we get from a desire point of view, how did we go from the village, common good, that sort of a sense to this stage where we are now, where we are so ruthlessly competing for the dream, where we're so ruthlessly competing for our individual success of enjoying life. How do, how do we get here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the full story has to do with, you know, the movement 
out of the medieval world into the modern world and the rise of capitalism and and globalism. Um, I mean, that's the full story, um, which we don't have time for today. <laughs> I mean, but basically, I mean, I mean, one way to answer the question is is to again to talk about capitalism as a technology of desire, um, and that. And, and to talk about how money plays a role in that and the history of how money came to structure um, everything, really, um, in the last se- several hundred years. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's a story and of the rise of private property. Uh, I mean, that's definitely, which is part of the rise of, the rise of capitalism um, and neoliberal markets. Um, and it... And yeah, and it and and I'm also part of this story is which is all part of the same history is the history of European colonization in the modern period, um, and setting certain ideals for what is the ideal flourishing human subject mm-hmm. and who is that and what does that look like and where do they come from and what do they sound like and what are the things they do and what religion do they have, all of that is part of funneling shaping um, the channels of our desire to want a certain vision of life and, and to have it as an ideal of this is what a successful, you know, performance of personhood yeah, looks yeah. like. It's, it's also caught up in possession, which is what you're saying yeah. there with, with capitalism and, and, uh, but the, and, and possession of property, but that also extends to possession of people and possession of the ideal family, yeah. loving couple with two children who play violin beautifully, um, <laughs> you know, are in the A-grade hockey team and speak Japanese or something, you know, because their, their parents have um, managed to successfully navigate mortgages um, raising children, ferrying them to you know six different extracurricular activities during the week, and that all looks you know that's part of the what um, part of the pressure on families, um, but just part of the way we do shape our desire. It's about possessing that when mm. you know we we don't uh, use that language, but I think it's true. And maybe even like and to add to that, I completely agree that maybe at the at the ground zero of that notion of possess of possession is possessing oneself. And having a kind of full control over oneself and one's desire, and or, or at least one thinks one does, right? And this is exactly what I want, and I want that. I'm going to go get it, and I'm going to mm. enact it. Mm. And I think that, and I think the whole ideology of possession, in some sense, is a lie. Um, and even and especially this idea of self-possession. So I mean, so it, and part of what is interesting to me about someone like Lauren Berlant and, and other people is how they kind of want to deconstruct that whole notion of possession even and especially this notion of self self-possession and its relation to desire um and one one of my current research interests is the whole field of psychoanalysis and one of the things that attracts me to psychoanalysis is it's one of its fundamental claims is that we are not masters of ourselves Hmm. that we are fundamentally opaque to ourselves and strangers to ourselves and to think that we actually possess ourselves Hmm. and have immediate access to know what we really want is actually a lie um, and that actually the process of working through desire and coming to know something about that self oneself is an arduous difficult process mm. and yet again our capitalist ideology wants us to simply bypass all that arduous work and hold out no actually this is what you want yeah rather than a more difficult confrontation with the strangeness that is oneself mm. Which is, I guess, one thing we often have talked about meditative prayer practices and how meditation, a lot of the time, is this slow process of detaching from the the performed self, the uh, just mm. notice and sitting in that space and in silence helps to just build that awareness of the performative self and and that that actually maybe we're a mystery to ourselves mm. um, and and the silence and the not instead of the achieving all the different ways that we might find in a ladder to God it's actually the undoing of that yep. and and remaining in the mystery and the unknowing is and also in that space is where um, it's about the deeply relational nature of God and the spaces between one another too so you cannot be involved in meditation without also being aware of the deeply relational nature of being yeah and discovering mm. the community of selves so mm. we're not even an individual to ourselves there's actually a, right exactly there's actually a little party going on in here <laughs> that's that, right oh, and some of them are hiding in the shadows yep. and and pulling strings and yep. and so yes the, the idea of the individual is just such a simplistic mm-hmm. simplifying idea 
as well and completely you, destructive. Well, yeah. One thing that's interesting about that though, Peter, and, and this is what uh, occurs to me when I think about how, how deep cruel optimism has its its grip on each of us is even things like psychoanalysis have been co-opted by it this idea that if you do enough therapy yeah <laughs> once you've done enough of the therapy and enough of the inner reflection wait till you see who you'll be then yeah, that's right yeah. um you know and, and we see this in religion as well once you've done it once you're holy enough once you've prayed yeah. enough studied enough theology whatever it might be this idea that actually some of the things that were there to help us deconstruct or, or work through these other desires have been co-opted by them. Yeah, it's so true, which is, it, it reminds me of one line from Freud, right? Speaking of psychoanalysis that I actually appreciate um, when he says something like the goal of the goal of psychoanalysis is simply to transform hysterical misery into common unhappiness. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's the best it can do for you. <laughs> and, I, and, I, it's, and I like that because it's just a sort of deflated account of yeah. what these so-called self-help things can do. And, yeah, and this is part of cruel optimism, this sense of any, you can over-promise, right? If, if you come and do this, if you come do this therapy, if you take this medicine, if you do this whatever, you'll, you'll be happy, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, that's dangerous, so... Absolutely, these things have been co-opted. So yeah, I, I appreciate the more deflationary accounts and, and the more realistic accounts hmm. of of what human life is. Yeah, you know, I, late uh, last year, late in twenty twenty two, I went to with a few friends to uh, a big event at the convention center in Brisbane. Um, Esther Perel was visiting. Oh yeah, a famous, obviously, um, psychoanalyst, yep. probably one of the leading voices on love and relationships and desire in the world today. And it was fascinating because sold every seat in the in the venue. Uh, and I wondered how many, how long in your ministry would a psychoanalyst sell every seat in a two, 3,000 seat venue of people there? Clearly from the questions that were asked in the room, all carrying their own sense of how can this insight help me bring mm. happiness in this part of my own life. But, but one of the fascinating things that Esther said in this particular um, event was she said the research shows that for for much of human history, when leaving a marriage has been possible, people would leave a marriage when they were deeply unhappy. Mm. And she said the research suggests in the last 20 or 30 years, people are now leaving marriages, yes, when they're deeply unhappy, but a lot of people now leave marriages when they just wonder if maybe they could be happier. Mm. And, and I thought about that when you were speaking about cruel optimism, this idea mm. of how much that sense of, is, is what I'm currently doing actually the happiest I could be? Mm. Um, leads us to leave jobs, relationships, houses, to go and seek the the ideal utopia that's just over the hill, and and I think something that you spoke about at this event we were at, um, or you're speaking about cruel optimism, Peter, was the radical subversion of good enough. Yes, <laughs> of aiming for good enough. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and it comes from, I mean, this, or at least where I get the idea from, is from another psychoanalyst, so the British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. Um, and he develops this idea of good enough in the context of, of parenting uh, and this idea that what kids really need from parents are, are not perfect parents, parents who are always perfectly attuned to the children's needs and, you know, are perfect parents. They need good enough parents, right? Um, someone who's, who's good enough and attuned enough can meet their needs enough that they have the chance of growing up and becoming, you know, um, flourishing human beings to some extent, right? So, and, and I like that idea. And, and I like the idea of Winnicott and he applies it more broader than parenting. Um, and I like to apply it to, you know, more broadly as well. And I think it's a good principle for life, really, that what I'm looking for in a relationship is not the perfect relationship. Because what is, I mean, or the... What is that or, anyway? What is that anyway? Yeah, yeah, or really anything yeah. that we attach us, all yeah. of our attachments, our relationships, our jobs, our friendships... To some degree, all all of our attachments are by necessity ambivalent, mm. um, because of and I, this because of the nature of human nature, the nature of desire, and this goes back to these you know the principles of psychoanalysis that I'm that I appreciate about you know the the opacity of ourselves to ourselves, and and we'll never have perfect attachments. And to some degree, they're all ambivalent. And learning to recognize that and accept that, and say yeah, that's that's okay, that. It allows for a kind of more capacious, patient, um, less frenetic and demanding relation to one's own life when things yeah. are good enough. Yeah. yeah. Neo-capitalism uh, wants us to expect that the next thing will be better. Yeah. So yep. just because you've got the current, you know, your car might be five or six years old and it's good enough, mm. 
capitalism doesn't want us to settle for that. It wants us, wants us to realise that it... But it doesn't have this feature. Yep. And so you need to get that in order to... And the same with your partners, jobs. And you know, the, the way people churn through jobs these days fascinates me. Um, mm. you know, people probably stay in jobs for 18 months to two years, which... I would have thought it was about as long as it takes you to actually know what you're actually doing <laughs> in a job. Know what you're doing. <laughs> but, uh, but it seems like, and, and I've talked to a few people who've been moving on, and it is just the idea that you have to be moving on because the next thing is beckoning. And the next thing is, is, is there's a promise of the next thing, which is, because of the model, is always the next best thing it's the mm. it's the better thing it has to be better because it's the next thing the next mm. thing is always better by, by and definition I, and i think the irony of that is is that it's this i think the way we relate to that is oh it's the next thing it'll be the new thing the better yeah. thing but the irony is it's it's actually never really the new it's never new in no. any real sense it's just a it's the next line it's the next commodity on the belt right yeah. being produced where we're actually to detach from always looking for the next thing. Actually, maybe the possibility of being surprised by something, mm-hmm. right? So it's yeah. this difference between always seeking the new thing mm-hmm. versus actually what, what would it mean to live in relation to the possibility of genuine surprise or genuine creativity that, that, that isn't simply what you can calculate as the next thing. Well, and that, that's, a different, that's a different kind of relationship mm. to the future than always the next thing, right? And that it requires a kind of capacity to inhabit the present mm. which we spoke about earlier mm. Mm. Um, to be open actually open to the future which comes back to freedom again doesn't it yeah that we're um actually being aware that our desires are being shaped mimetically they're being shaped by others which is this basis of competition in the capitalist mm. market anyway and capitalist ideas that imbue all of life including the way we conduct our relationships you know and so while we've got that desire it's lim- actually limiting what we can desire um, I really love, I've, well, I've always complained about people who choose Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way yes. for their funerals. So <laughs> yes. I brought this up and I'd sit there when people ask for it and you go, oh, okay. Um, because to me it seems like the capitalist theme song, right? Yeah. It seems like the individualistic Western theme song. And I loved um, reading recently in Bono's uh, memoirs that he's written about Frank Sinatra in his later days. And he said he sang it like in a... Um, almost cynical self-deprecating way so uh, that by the end of his life yeah. he wasn't singing it in the same way he sang at the yeah. start which I thought was fascinating hmm. so you can read that one of a couple of ways and I can't quite remember how, how Bono described it but uh, it was, you can either read it as I did it my way and look how it turned out as kind of self-mockingly um, which has a sort of edge of tragedy too, yeah, yeah. Um, mockingly. Or you could also read it as, I did it, my, you know, here I was thinking I was doing it my way and all the time my desires were just being shaped by everyone else's anyway. Yeah. So was I really free to yeah. make those choices? No, you know, my way you know, was was actually really being determined yeah. by by the, the, the water that we're swimming in, you know, and I, I think... That I, getting a handle on, on how we understand um, freedom in the context of desire, desires, being able to truly desire, not desires shaped by um, competitive mimesis, but desires actually, mm. where do they come from? Mm-hmm. And where, where mm. is the freedom mm. in that? Mm. Are really big questions, I think. Yeah, huge questions. It's interesting we're speaking about desire here and, and uh, I know that desire is something that comes up often. I remember Peter Cat, you telling a story some time ago about Jesus, a moment Jesus basically says to the disciples, your desires are wrong. Yes, right. <laughs> and how often, which, what, what story is that? That's the story where they say, what, what, are, uh, what, what do we get for following you? And Jesus takes the mickey out of them, but in... in um, prosperity theology it's seen as jesus being serious he says you guys no worries you're going to have a throne each you're going to have as much wealth as you got <laughs> and you and i just keep saying to people remember that this is a guy who probably hasn't had a shower for a month talking to this disheveled group of people and they're saying what do we get out of this and he says don't worry it's sort of your riches galore mate you know so he's <laughs> he's actually just saying to them what do you expect to get out of this you're not going to get anything like that but yeah. we've taken it to be Jesus being serious and promising 
um, gold encrusted thrones to the to the apostles, and then of course we capture it up in art and songs, and we turn it into the gospel truth, and then wonder why prosperity theology finds a handle. Yeah, yeah, and it makes me think that the desire often is so linked, not not actually to the next thing, but to the notion or the narrative that the next thing could be the thing that mm. that fulfills mm-hmm. the the journey. That um, you know, it's almost like a kid on Christmas Eve is more excited by the idea of how yeah. much Christmas could make them happy than actually excited for what Christmas will be. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this excitement that tomorrow I might feel these incredible emotions. Yeah. And and I think people do that through, you know, whatever it is, relationships, through work, through mm-hmm. travel. Yeah. It's you know, this is um I think this is so much I know a couple of people who are about to go on on big trips and I've, uh, my parents are actually just about to head off to Europe and they've been laughing about how they've been able to notice themselves going, oh, that trip is going to unlock something we've never experienced before. Whereas in reality, it'll be wonderful parts of the trip. There'll be other parts where you get an awful meal or you're exhausted or maybe you catch a bug from something. It's just going to be more of life, just in different, nice, lovely locations. But it's not likely to be the utopian now I've unlocked what mm-hmm. it really truly is to be here. Mm-hmm. So if, if desire, if that desire for one day stumbling into the true heart of this whole thing is what's driving the journey, how do we, how do we recognize that? And then maybe <laughs> bold question, but I know it's the one we keep coming back to change our desire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the question. <laughs> how do you change? I mean, even for an individual, but then also even on larger what we as, you know, um, societies and whole cultures, whole, whole cultures desire. I mean, I mean, one, I mean, one way to get at that is through this question of, and it, you know, all of us are involved in this in one way or another here on the podcast with faith, spirituality, church, religion, mm. um, because just as capitalism is various technologies of desire, so so I would say is that's what religion is. In, in one way to view it, right, is a it's a way of of staging narratives of desire and and what you want, um, and and what we want and, and who we are and, and what we think God or the cosmos or reality wants of us. So so that's I mean it's one way it's one's place to stage stage the question, and and I think that one way to think about what f- communities of faith are, or one way to think what they could be, is local experiments in desiring differently and hmm. in, in organizing ourselves differently and socially differently so that we so that we we experiment with it right and i think and one of the keys is is to not just make it into another moral imperative demand right yeah. of, of we have to you're you know you're cruelly optimistic attachments are wrong and you're just participating in this system and shame on you right like i just think that's that's not helpful and it's not and it's it doesn't work, right? And so it's it's a way of inviting people into different kinds of experiments, mm-hmm. um, and seeing if, and and doing it communally and mm. seeing what emerges out of that. Mm. I think that's, mm. I think it's on the money. Yeah. <coughs> I I I think that's really good, uh, and I love that distinction that we're not just making this into another. This is the way yeah, you've no. got to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do believe that God speaks in the language of desire, and we've mm-hmm. been in the business a lot, unfortunately, in the church of trying to forget that or papering over that, or because we're you know kind of not sure what to do with it or something. Um, I remember it was a, a surprise to me uh, um, when I first kind of stumbled onto this idea that maybe. God spoke in that language and that was a, a voice that I should pay attention to. And so I think that's, for starters, a, a mm. starting point. Mm. But then in that way, it's like hope. I think desire and hope are similar. We can get hope really wrong too. Um, hope, when we think about it as something we want specifically that we don't have and we're just going to keep praying that we might get that thing, you know, is actually not helpful. Um, but hope... It's torture. It's torture. It oh, can yeah. be torturous. But hope, when it's grounded in... The, na- the truth of things, the revealed truth of things. I I've sort of is somewhere where I'm stumbling to a, a, a better definition of hope, but the same way with desire, I think when we actually can say, well, maybe there is that in me um, that is part of the lure of God 
that God lures us mm. into something um, that is for joy and love and peace and that we notice this lure uh, and we're attracted to it. And so the sort of communities, different communities you're talking about forming, that mm. might be prompted by responding to the lure of God um, and you start to notice um, the the peace that is possible that is different to the way that you've been um, inhabiting yourself and relationships, something that's different and it lures you into um, a, a deeper truth about who you are and who the world is. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think that's a fascinating point, Sue, that, that the moment hope and perhaps desire become problematic is when they become fixated on some individual thing, person, whatever it might be. That, that a, a more general hope in the pattern and shape of reality and the heart of all things and a more general desire for life and the fullness of life are, are very different things to a desire for this exact job mm-hmm. or a hope that I'm going to get that exact partner. And, and that actually when these things become specific is when attachment comes in, is when mm-hmm. fusion, needing, all of these sort of more tightly grasping things come into it which just suffocate the actual <laughs> desire I'd, itself. I'd probably just... just edit that a little bit by saying it, it is specific in the way we embody that experience when we encounter something but it's when we attach it um to a specific object yes so sure, sure. i think it's when mm. that our, our experience of what i was talking about with the lure of god and our encounter with truth is a, is a specific thing it's generally grounded in the particular um mm. in the particular moment in time in particular relationships um but our hope becomes um unhelpful for us when we attach it to an object yeah and the idea that god desires us um can transform our understanding of desire too yes um, imagine imagine god as someone who actually desires us mm-hmm. and therefore what does that mean about us and desire yeah maybe a desire in us is yeah. actually awakening to the mm. desire that's already directed yeah, at us yeah yeah mm. correct mm-hmm. and and the transformative um because you know for most of us there's that sense of we want to we want to have some sort of value um, and neo-capitalism gives us a model for how you achieve that and by attaining things. But to discover that one is desired, full stop, is a complete reversal of that idea of achieve, of getting somewhere by achieving stuff, but to accept an ontological fact of being desired is an amazing act of transformation. Mm. You can just stop. <laughs> you can just absolutely stop and then go, okay, now what? Now that I am and I'm desired and I'm loved and... Yeah, when you're not trying to resolve or fill a, fill a void. And you're not trying to make something love you yeah. because a lot of... You know, Peter talked before about dating sites and stuff like that it, and the self-promotion that goes mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that... And I see it in CVs. Um, CVs have certainly transformed in the last 25 years. Now it's sort of not just I've done this and this is my experience, let me tell you what who. It is I am the best person for your job because, and you think, you have no idea, you know, really. But it's this idea you have to promote yourself because you're not, because there's a fear behind it that you're actually not good enough. Mm. Whereas if we go back to the, okay, you're desired, okay, yeah. I don't need to do that anymore. I'll just say, well, this is me. Right, here I am. Well, but it is interesting to me as you say that, that maybe the that fear of not being good enough, that almost, I heard a comedian say a few years ago, some sort of comment about how their belief was every lyric of every song, every word posted on social media, every piece of artwork made in the last 30 to 40 years, every word spoken in conversation has been effectively love me, love me, love Ooh, me. Yeah. And and their point was that that is what we're all carrying around and some of us are aware that that's what we're doing and others aren't. And, but deep down, we're all going, am I loved? Do you love me? Am I good? Mm. Am I right here? And that this, this desperate sort of pursuit... If is founded, and I think this is what I love about cruel optimism, on the idea that some people have it. That there is yeah. there are some people who go, Oh no, I fully know that I'm loved, I fully I have yeah. none of that stuff. 
and we're the ones who don't have it. We're yep. the ones who are missing out. The myth so, of scarcity, once again. Yes, the myth like of scarcity, scarcity is everywhere. And, and yeah. it's, it's interesting. A few years ago, maybe a year or two ago, one of the, the big new social media apps was called Be Real. I don't know if you guys oh, know yeah, yeah. Be Real yeah, much, yeah. but Be Real came along. And Be Real is an app where at a random time every day, you get an alert that pops up that says it's time to be real. It might happen at 10 in the morning or 7 at night or any random time in the day. And immediately the idea is you're meant to take the photo of where you are at that time and it will post it with you and your friends. And for the first few weeks that I tried Be Real, I thought it was quite wonderful because instead of social media, normally on Instagram being curated, I'm seeing people who are sitting at their desk at work not doing anything and I'm seeing somebody sitting on the couch eating a packet of Twisties and it was quite wonderful. Within a few months of being on Be Real though, I noticed that the only people who had decided to post that day were ones who were out somewhere impressive mm, or doing something mm. cool. And I thought, this is happening again. Yep. Yep. Again, yep, this yep, thing yep. that was meant to dismantle has become another form of look at the life I'm living. Look how much fun I'm having. Look how many people love me. Do you guys love me now? And I find it funny that even the way we respond on Instagram and largely on Facebook is by loving something. It's almost like trying to give each other a little click, love, 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 and then you want to get them back. Am I loved? Am I loved? I just this is where I think the radical the radical idea of grace is is so helpful this idea that yep. that love and acceptance are are assured they're step 1 that's yep. the ground of the whole thing cuz cruel optimism almost works on the sense that they're not assured absolutely you've got to work for them is that a fair statement no absolutely well, no I I think that's definitely right and it and this conversation it also makes me think of the in terms of the the sort of radical edge of what you might say the christian gospel is is that, yes, God desires me, but doesn't desire me according to any of the sort of idealized mm. images that I even have of myself or that yep. people are projecting on me, that, that God desires me, yeah, apart from any of that. And also that God desires what I have been trained to find repulsive and ugly and mm. despicable and a failure. Like, that not only does God desire me, but God also desires all the way to you know, and this is, gets to Jesus, all the way to God does, also desires my enemy. Mm. And that, mm. that's a crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's so right. how do you, what does it mean that God desires me and desires the person that I hate? Yeah. Um, and the then, part of me that I hate. And the part of me, exactly. And the part of me that I hate. Mm. Yeah. And that God des- actually desires that and wants, wants to, to, to be in relation to that and wants to yeah. grow that and nurture that. That, that. That's the beginning of a different social order yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. that's the and that's um and so what, when we talk about you know churches being experiments and desiring differently that's the sort of what if they started what if you start there and mm, start to ask mm. those questions in your particular neighborhood and your particular wherever you are where is the desire of god you know wh- what what risky courageous you know relations does it take us into mm. Yeah. That's excellent. It's, you know, it reminds me actually of someone I used to work with in radio who in the space of three years had started and ended five different relationships with partners mm. all at around the three to six month mark is where they mm. all would end. And every time they ended, once he went to Tibet, once he went to Hawaii, I'm trying to remember where else he went. He went to Africa at one stage. I think there might have been some trip up into the Arctic Circle, but what he'd always he'd always say, "I'm in a relationship, and now I've got to go find myself." <laughs> and, and I remember one particular person in the radio station said, "How many times can one find themselves? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in three years? That's a lot of self discovery." But but yep. clearly, it was this this endless sort of chasing of mm. the ideal, the optimized me mm. is out there, yeah. and I just have to keep running until I find it. It's kind of the myth of the self too, isn't it? it is. The myth yeah. that where you can in any way be constructed as a self because there is no self that's not relational. That's yeah. right. There is, you know, I can only understand me in relationships and running off mm. somewhere, you know, whether it's to a cave or to the you know, <laughs> is not yeah. going to, to suddenly construct a self that does not exist outside mm. of relationship yep. at all. Or no. in, or in as a as a process. Yeah. Right? It's always about shifting within that relational space right yeah yeah the yeah. idea of the self is some sort of solid achieved yes. you know thing a thing that's yes the, yeah that's mm. the lie right mm. yeah, yeah which is also why we have a problem because we think god's a thing isn't that's it? right <laughs> yeah. no it's true that's right yeah. yep that's right and it makes me think you know you go back thousand two thousand years to when we're in villages of 150 the idea that someone would end a relationship to go and find themselves go where (laughs) in the next village what do you mean you like that that idea of and this is what you were talking about earlier that 
this narrative of freedom has become in some ways oppressive because it, it puts the imperative on us to go and chase whatever it is we feel we're after. Hmm. And, and it's interesting as, as we talk about all of these things, I know we've, we're speaking about real estate at the beginning. I want to come back to real estate because yeah. you did mention to me as someone who's, you've been a bit involved with real estate agents lately, as have I, as I know Sue has as well. And you said the phrase that you think real estate agents are the high priests of cruel optimism. Um, can you just uh, yeah. unpack that a, a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, real estate agents is the high priests of, of cruel optimism. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean that as a slight against any particular real estate agent or, you know, there's, you know, lovely people who are real estate agents. It's more of a kind of structural comment on mm. the position they hold. And yeah, and that what what they mediate, right? And this is their priestly role, what they mediate, what they, you know, hold out are these visions, these optimistic visions of ideal, you know, family belonging or, you know, you'll if you have this dwelling or you're part of this neighborhood or you're you know, you have the, the it's it is. It's it's the embodiment of cruel optimism, right? Yeah. And in particularly the way the real estate market, I mean globally, certainly here in Australia, how that 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 cruelly optimistic dream is becoming more and more difficult and available to less and less people, and yet the desire for it is growing more and more and more, right? So, yeah. So I mean, just and you know, I've been in the yeah recently bought a house and been involved in the real estate market for the last, you know, year really. And I've had a lot of time just to reflect on it and just to like, what, what is this, what does this do to people? And, and what is it doing to my soul? Right? What is it doing to my desire? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is, and it's, it's so, it, it gets at such of like, such a deep and, exp- and at the same time, expansive space of, of who am I? Right. And, and what do I want? And, and what is, you know, um, where do I want to be in this world? And what will I be if I live here? And what will I be if I live mm. there? And, and if I miss out on living there, if I miss out on that house, am mm. I missing out on, on myself, right? Yes. <laughs> ah, Your true like, self is in the basement. And, and you go to, you know, you go to these open homes and, and the way it works is you have to project yourself into this space and, and you have to learn how to start to desire it and to see yourself there. And then inevitably, you know, you don't get that or someone else, buy, you know, and it's this cycle of like hope, devastation, hope, devastation. And that's this cycle. That's precisely cruel optimism. Right. And that and that and then the real estate, like I just I, you know, I have friends who are real estate agents, but I, I can't imagine being that. I just can't imagine. It just seems like I, I, I don't know how people really are human in that role. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, but it's interesting because you look at the... One thing I find really interesting is probably the most prominent ads you'll see on bus stop shelters are real estate agents. Mm. Yeah. And there's always pictures of them smiling, you know, in a nice dress or a nice suit, arms crossed, smiling at camera. And they are without fail the most graffitied images yeah. <laughs> that you'll see in the suburbs. And I kind of like to imagine, since you made that comment about real estate agents being the high priests of cruel optimism, that something in the human psyche knows this needs to be taken down. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's why those ads get graffitied the most because they're too perfect. Yeah. And we know it's not true. We know it's not true. Yeah. And the graffiti is almost an act of showing the rest of the world this is a lie. <laughs> this thing over here is not true. No, it's a great point. And it, and it makes me think, again, this shift, this shift from... Who are, you know, who are the ones giving us the the moral imperative or the demands through which we live? Like the real estate agent more embodies that kind of demand on us really than even politicians now mm-hmm. uh, in, in some ways, right? Like so, so yeah, people, people want to go, there's something about the, that and the graffiti and the sort of backlash against that and the sort of rebellion against the real estate agent that embodies something about where we are in our in our yeah, age yeah. and again that that to flourish as a moral imperative and the demand to enjoy which is associated with the demand to have the beautiful house and everything there's that's the, it comes at us as this as as a demand right mm. so there's something i like that that's a, it's a good connection there and there's all the stuff about what possessing land means and what it has meant through history yes. and yeah. how it's changed who we are in community and how you know land is something to be owned rather than something that sustains us or that we are in relationship with as well. And the neighbours with whom we share that land, mm. we are in relationship or are we dividing up this is mine and that's definitely them and I have nothing to do with them. 
Mm. You know, all of that is underpinning this too. And you yep. put layer on top, I know too, just the, the desperate housing crisis that we have yes. now, that it doesn't just mean there's it's, it's carving this huge gap between um, what is possible and impossible in terms of um, standards of living for people, that there are so many. And you talk to most 20-somethings and they will say, I'm never going to own a house. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. And um, for that to be um, a truth that they just believe absolutely is is a tragedy if if it means that society is going to be continually constructed like this and therefore excluding yeah. um, from basic needs of of a comfortable place to call home um, you know not even just not even a, a, it's not about being uh, even an impressively curated space to call home it's just about somewhere that you can feel safe and secure mm-hmm. that we're at that level you know yeah, and you think about it as well. Once you have found your way in and you've got the 30-year mortgage signed or whatever, you're probably way too stressed to think about the common good. So this is how the system keeps sort of That's perpetuating true. itself. Cause oh, yeah, and brings people's worlds down to being really, really small. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the electorates in the north of the city, um, uh, we did some work at one stage and people didn't, re- didn't know who their local member was, didn't care. Um, all they cared about was any policy that impinged on their castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was their world. Their world had become that small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's they've been co-opted into thinking that yeah, way. Yeah. That wasn't, yeah, yeah. They didn't originally no, set no, up that no, way. No, 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 that's right. They were set up for it, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. this, yeah, this is, it, it goes right to the heart of the whole thing, doesn't it? I even re- remember maybe almost a decade ago going through a difficult time and saying to a friend, I just think I want to escape all of this and just go be a hermit living in a cabin in the woods or something and then reflecting on that a few years later and realising that was its own form of cruel optimism mm-hmm. that I'd been sold this idea that if I had a cabin in the woods and a flowing stream that <laughs> there I'd find my true self and be happy yeah. and thinking there's no is there actually any way out of this thing or is mm-hmm. is even our attempts to get out or to deconstruct or to find mm-hmm. a healthier way mm-hmm. forward co-opted mm-hmm. you know this yep. is the other thing is you yep. I've been a part of a few faith communities, um, both in a school job and, and beforehand, where some sense of this new way forward was discovered and it was quite wonderful and exciting and we we're meeting together. And soon enough, someone said, this is brilliant. We've got to take photos and write an article about what we're doing to promote it, to get it out there. And then we're just selling often the dream of that to other people and keeping yep. the whole thing going. So yep. it's yeah, it seems to run the, the, whole, the whole show, which I guess... I don't know, it's very easy to have these conversations, Peter, and just feel a bit like a deep sigh of what's happened to us as humans, how did we get here, and and is there actually any hope that we can disentangle ourselves from from what cruel optimism's done in a society where, and I think I might have made this comment in the Willie James Jennings episode, that um, the option isn't play the game or don't play the game. The option is play the game or lose the game. Mm-hmm. So w- when when those are the conditions we're all playing in, is there actually any way to disentangle ourselves? Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I think that's right. That it's not play the game, don't play the game, but play the game or, or lose the game. So the question then is, um, can you... Can you play the game differently? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's can you what? imagine something differently? This is um, yeah. very yeah. much about imagination. I think when it, mm. desire and imagination have got to go together yeah, somehow. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and, and to realize that the that the game, for all of its dominance and hegemony, um, it isn't fully in control of itself mm. either. So there is ways to mm. experiment with something within it. Um, and to, and again, I don't, you know, what that means practically, again, is so specific to local communities yeah. and neighborhoods and contexts or churches or individual lives. But it's, but it, it is, it's, it, and, and I think at the heart of it all really is about finding ways to connect, connect with, connect with people um, and to, and to shift the sort of just abstract, abstraction that we're, we're the abstractions in which we're taught to live our lives, yeah. right? And even even our, our idea of ourselves as individuals is an, an abstraction, right? Like the idea of an individual is modeled on the idea of a commodity, right? It's just one mm. one other mm. thing. So to to find ways to to just connect with with others in in very basic ways, 
I think that's mm. and experimenting with it. I think that's the yeah. way to do it. You know, I even think of um, your the, the game that you made with the little the little cars. Yes. Yeah. You know, I forget what is it called. Uh, uh, so this private speaking for those I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast. Yeah, well, before, you should because so it's because it's a it's actually, <laughs> one, it's actually wonderful. So, so it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's available okay. on our website. Yes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> look, it's a, a deck of four hundred cards, yep. each with questions to lead to deeper, more human yeah. conversations. Yes, um, I was recently on a private stat- speaking. If you want to get it on private Etsy, private speaking, yes. and it will make you fulfill your dreams. Yes, and, uh, make you happy. Uh, it'll resolve make all happy. of your unhappiness. It'll make you into a much better person. <laughs> yeah, much better person. Yes, yes, your next yes, best yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, So I was. We, I, we actually, I was on staff retreat um, with my colleagues a few weeks ago, and this is we spent a whole evening just using oh, your cards, and they're it's just it's just very simple prompts to start conversations mm. about, about people that get you to that bitter, bit of deeper level, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's also humorous, and but it's it's just, I'm like, yeah, this is just sitting around talking with and connecting, like, this is the point, yeah. right? Like, this, yeah. is, this, yeah. is the, this is the point of being human, yeah. is yep. to encounter each other to, and to be able to hold our humanity together yeah. in, sim- in very simple ways um, and to build communities where that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So again, yeah. so it's not, it's not, a, it, it's not, I don't think it's rocket science or anything no. super extraordinary. It's about yeah. finding these very simple gestures, yeah. which end up actually being very radical gestures of simply connecting with each other. And I think there are lots of people who are actually living it. The problem mm. is we don't tell the stories about it. Yeah, yeah. And that's where our storytelling capacity has got to be brought to bear because I think there are millions of people who are out there living that sort of life mm. and they, you know, they're still driving the 1976 Holden Kingswood mm-hmm. because they don't give in to the idea that the next car is the best car because this car's good enough. Yeah, it's good enough. Yeah. And, yep. they, and they've got a house that's good enough and they've lived in the neighbourhood for a long time and they've got their neighbours and they are doing relational stuff and they're having barbecues in the backyard that are not driven by any sort of desire to have the special barbecue. It's one that we've made out of a 44-gallon drum. And I think it's because we don't tell that story, we think there isn't the answer isn't out there, but I suspect there's a whole bunch of people who are already doing it and there are church communities that are doing it. And the problem in church communities is we don't actually tell the stories about the ordinary stuff, mm-hmm. about the people who sit down and have cups of tea. Mm-hmm. And we think sometimes that they're the waste of space because mm-hmm. they're not doing mission, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. and yet that is a mission in itself. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just about storytelling mm-hmm. and making sure that we give priority to a different class of story. Yeah, storytelling and, and la- you mentioned laughter too yeah, I, laughter. I do think you know mm. I love that laugh and shame the devil line because I think there's um, when there are evil structures laughter is sometimes some of the best ways and we're indebted to you know things like the shovel and chaser and, you know for sometimes um, drawing our attention there can be mm, the prophets mm. like we, I was just looking at a meme about you know entitled millennials demand air conditioning for their $1,500 a week rent. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just that's that calling out and noticing. And and so that's part of it. And recognising that the human spirit is so much more than we are sold by capitalist systems for it to be, that the human spirit is found in the spaces between and in all these moments when we are actually being together in different ways that have nothing to do with money, that have nothing to do with commodifying or possessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that human spirit, we often see it in humour, I think. We see mm-hmm. it um, and, and in just the everyday moments, but, but starting to recognise um, just the beauty of, of those and, yeah. and, the, and the worth. Yeah. 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 No, it takes me right back, Sue, to remembering talking to that careers counsellor in high school and that careers counsellor asking me, Firstly, what I wanted out of life, but then said, "What's what would be your worst fear of how life could play out? And I remember saying to this Chris counsellor at the time, and this shows how much of a devotee I was to the temple of cruel optimism. I said, oh, if I just had like a normal family life in the suburbs, that would be my worst fear. Like that's, I couldn't live that. I couldn't do that. And they said, why? And, and I remember saying to her, like, I, I've, I've got to do something really significant and special, don't I? That's mm. what, what it's all about. And I noticed this now working at a school, how often the response when we ask a year 12 what they want to do, they'll say be significant or be famous mm. or the significant mm. is a slightly maybe higher esteemed version of be famous. Mm. But it's this whole idea that, that yep. 
I have to go and do something absolutely game-changing. I have to revolutionize the system. I have to be on the billboard, whatever it Mm -hmm. might be. And only then will I be good enough, will my Mm -hmm. life be worthwhile, and will all the sacrifices my parents made maybe make it (laughs) maybe be justified. So I think this radical technology of good enough, Mm. of, Mm. you know... (laughs) Yeah, this is not the nicest restaurant in the suburb, but we're having dinner here tonight and it's, <laughs> it's good, good enough. We're good together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, this community we're in is absolutely crazy. Look at what the people do here, but it's good enough. It's good enough. Yeah. There's humans here and accessing that, that mm. core humanity. I don't know. I think it's, um, okay. I remember a friend telling me years ago that, that they think the only time we really fall in love in life is when we fall in love with people's brokenness rather mm-hmm. than their strengths or their, their mm. successes. Yeah. And I think there's something so much in falling mm. in love with a life in its brokenness, not mm. in its successes as well. Yeah. So, Which is, again, to bring us back to theology, I think that's the Christian story. Yeah. You know, mm. that, that we are loved precisely in our brokenness, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. And that's, that's the heart of it, really. You know, it's interesting. I remember really early on when I made those cards, we sat around in a group. And I, I think one of the questions I asked was... Um, when did you? When have you felt like an imposter in your work lately? Mm. Which is one of the cards, and I remember asked I, that wasn't in the box, but I suggest I, I just asked the group one night because it came to mind, and we all ran around and told stories of, um, you know, trying to sound really impressive and how we signed off an email or trying to deal with the situation at work, and in our heads the whole time we're going, I have no idea what I'm doing here, <laughs> and sitting in a circle of eight people telling these stories was the most life-giving, relieving, yep. joyful experience. Because I thought, I think we all had this moment of going, it's not just me. Mm. We're all doing this. Isn't it stupid that we're all having to project this? And just accessing that human, mm-hmm. the cracks where the truth comes through, I think is such mm. a, that's how cruel optimism falls apart, isn't it? Mm. That's yeah, sort of no, how definitely. you get through it. Yeah. Definitely. I've recently so. um, started listening to a podcast called The Imperfects. Oh, I don't know yes, if yes. Do you remember that? And it's yeah. it's a it's this is the theme. Brian Shelton. And yeah, that's right. And it, yeah, and it's all yeah. and it's all just about cutting through. Yeah, you might say cutting through cruel optimism. Yes. And to yeah. sort of break through to say let's let's just have a tell stories, you know about about imperfect life. Yeah. And that being good enough. Right. So mm. it's, anyway, it's a good podcast. I recommend it's it. Change your life. The yeah. Imperfects. It'll, uh, yeah, it'll make you complete. It will totally revolutionize it. <laughs> you can ditch this old podcast. Forget yeah. the other way podcast. The truth lies over there. <laughs> but no, it is a brilliant podcast yeah. and they're amazing at what they do. Mm. And um, you're amazing at what you do as well, Peter. We oh, are so, so grateful to have this conversation. Yeah, and uh, Brilliant. I think we've got to make you... I was saying to Sue, we've got to make you our recurring guest, I reckon. We've got to get yeah. you on once a year at least yeah. to do an episode now. So. It. And it's really hard to say no to that when you've got a microphone in front of you and we're all staring right. at you that's right <laughs> no i would i would love that i just yeah. i love this conversation Good. excellent and i count you all friends so i'd yeah. love you back anytime Beautiful. great well, thank, thank you so you. much peter and uh, we'll be back with another episode of the podcast soon